thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead. Follow your different. And um, if this is your first time hanging out with us, well, I want you to know we are a dialogue podcast. And uh, with all due modesty, we are a chart-topping, award-winning dialogue podcast. And so what you're about to hear is a real, unedited conversation. And one of the things about being a dialogue podcast is you will never hear an ad read in the middle of a guest conversation. Because I don't know about you, when I'm listening to another podcast and in the middle of a riveting conversation, they break to a commercial, it drives me nuts. So even though we could make more money by doing ads in the middle of the conversations, we don't do it. Now, we are sponsored by my good friends at Oracle NetSuite, the world's number one cloud ERP system. Check them out at netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And my friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in uh, Silicon Valley for over 20 years. They're going to help you conquer your category at atre.net. Now, on this episode, we continue our run of legendary authors. Our guest today is Annie Duke, and uh, she's a very special person. She's got a new book out called How to Decide Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. And you are going to love hanging out on uh, hanging out in her brain. You see, she's kind of like the Yoda of decision making for over two decades. Annie was one of the world's top professional poker players. And as a matter of fact, in 2004, Annie beat 234 players to win her first World Series of Poker. That same year, she won $2 million in the winner-take-all, invitation-only World Series of Poker Tournament Champions. And in 2010, she won the prestigious NBC National Heads Up Poker Championship. She's kind of like the um, Michael Jordan of poker, if you will. She retired from the game in 2012. And interestingly enough, prior to becoming a poker player, Annie was awarded the National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, where she got her master's. And she tells us how to think about the possible and the probable, how to think about the different futures that could occur. And she's got a very provocative point of view about luck that I think you'll find fascinating. On this episode, she teaches us, of course, about how she thinks about decisions and how building stronger decisioning skills can make a difference uh, at a time of crisis, particularly like the kind of time we're living in now. And in addition, I would uh, suggest you pay close attention to her thoughts on the power of a hedge. For more on Annie and her fantastic new book, go to Lockhead.com. Check out the show notes for this episode. And while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter. Now, hey-ho, let's go. How are you doing right now, Annie? So it's such an interesting question because it kind of depends on where my focus is. Like um, how zoomed in am I? How sort of wide angle am I? So if I were to zoom in, my answer would be pretty good. You know, we had some kind of sad things in the in this household. My daughter graduated from high school, which was obviously not in person. My son graduated from college. So we missed both of those. 
my stepson was supposed to get married on June 27th, a big wedding that obviously got canceled. And, you know, so that was sad. And then he also graduated from high school. Also, I mean, from law school, rather from law school. That'd be weird if you graduated from high school and was getting married. I was thinking, okay, well, hey, man, whatever. Uh, yeah, no, he was graduating <laughs> hey, from law school, law school. My stepson was graduating from law school. Did he get married anyway, or did they just postpone the whole thing? Well, they're doing a big, th- they're going to do a big thing next summer. And then they did like a little thing. So, so they actually got married. They just didn't have the big ta-da. I don't know if I'm allowed to say. Oh, okay. Well, I was just curious because I've heard people who who do what that is they get married anyway because they want to marry their loved one but yeah. um you know they're they push yeah, it but off they're a big year thing, or whatever they're big things gonna yeah be the ceremony they're gonna redo the ceremony and shit but anyway so we, we there were four things like that is a lot with two graduations no three graduations and a wedding yeah but aside aside from that aside from that you know i'm in a i'm in a privileged position that uh my i do knowledge work and so my work is really from home yeah. You know, my eyes get a little tired from Zoom, but that's okay. And I have a backyard, which by the way, like it's no small thing. It's like a huge thing to have a backyard. And I have one. So, you know, that's nice. And I'm able, I don't have food insecurity and, you know, all, all the kind of things that could make this experience like quite awful on a personal level. I'm very lucky to not to be in a position where I can sort of deal with those, those things. So, you know, and and then I I actually had this kind of interesting reprieve, which was kind of nice, which is, you know, I'm at a point where my children are fleeing the home (laughs) and my daughter is going off to college in the fall. And that's my last one. But they all, you know, all but my oldest daughter came back home Hmm. for most of it. So they, they were here for, oh gosh, like about five months. And so, so they're just starting to disperse again, you know, sort of figuring out getting their own place and practicing social distancing and whatnot, like on their own, which, which as they should, but it was nice having, it was nice having that little surprise four and a half, five months of, of Mm. the kids returning and getting to really bond as a family. And it was really like family dinners every night and cooking homemade food because we weren't obviously ordering from restaurants and that, that was, it was nice. Yeah. So there, you know, that was kind of a, a nice thing that came out of it. But obviously on on any other level than like this really little inward microscope, I'm very, you know, I'm concerned. I have a lot of concern and anxiety about just the world in general and kind of where this goes and what happens with COVID and, you know, obviously what's happening, you know, j- just in terms of, you know, obviously George Floyd being murdered uh, and what's, what's happened kind of in the wake of that. And um, it just feels like there's, there's a lot of stuff going on kind of all at once, you know, and I imagine it, it must be a little bit like what it must've felt like in 1968. You know, there were so many different things, you know, the war and, you know, the civil rights movement and the protesting and, and some rioting and that kind of stuff that were all sort of like, and the assassinations of leaders and right. I was going to say, if I'm not mistaken, 68 is the year uh, we lost MLK. MLK and Bobby Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. Right. Uh, in it, one year, you know, and I'm, I, I can imagine sort of the whiplash and the, the anxiety that people must've felt then. Cause it, it feels a little similar to kind of what's happening now. So it kind of depends on 
what I'm looking at when you ask me how I, how, in terms of telling me how I'm doing. I'd love to know how you're doing. I'll answer the question this way. I'm really stoked to be having the conversation with you right now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the last little bit of my life has been uh, quite the walk through fire. But um, oh, um, hmm. I'm very glad to be. I'm glad you're here right now and we get to do this. Now, I'm curious, Annie, is every decision a bet? Oh, yes. Is it? <laughs> yes. Because I'm, I'm curious how you think about making decisions, just given who you are and your background. And, you know, in the context of what we were just talking about, you're, you're making decisions all the time to do things, to not do things, to, to deal with this mass amount of uncertainty. And if I think about your career in, in sort of maybe a somewhat different light, well, you are making decisions with imperfect information uh, uh, based on a mass set of potential uh, uncertain outcomes, and yet you managed to become a world champion making, and, and you were in the kind of field, if I could call it that, you'll tell me how you, what you think of it, but where you don't get to be a multi-time champion by accident. You, you can't just sort of fluke your way into poker championships. You, you got to actually have a skill and be able to pull this off consistently. And so I'm just curious, given this life you've had as a professional decision maker in the face of imperfect, uncertain circumstances and imperfect information, how all this shit looks to you. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's such a good way to put it. So, yeah, so obviously I, I have this background in poker, but prior to that, I have a background in cognitive science. I was doing my PhD work at the University of Pennsylvania. And so I, I kind of had some structure. Like most professional poker players, yeah, right, like are, are deeply learned on a way to a PhD. <laughs> So some are, I think some of poker are. players is, you know, fat dudes who sort of look like me with cigars and shit. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting that I think that used to be more the case. Now I would think of poker players. If you thought of like a quant on Wall Street, uh, that's a little bit more of the category that you'd be looking at now. But but in my generation, I think you were mostly right. So I think this is actually kind of interesting, which is that in a lot of ways, I kind of think about this the decision-making environment that we're sitting in now uh, due to the pandemic as one of the greatest opportunities to become a decision, good decision-maker, really high-quality decision-maker that the world could ever have offered somebody. All the really obviously horrible stuff aside, right? Like, the, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. It's awful. And we mourn for the dead and my heart breaks for the people who are affected by this. Um, and at the same time, there are things that this is forcing us to confront uh, in terms of the way we make, we make decisions that if we could take that into what looks like a more stable environment, we'd a lot, be a lot better off. So this is kind of the way that I think about it. I think that mostly, so did you, did you ever read like the, the, the actual book, The Wizard of Oz? Or did you no, just watch the movie? You didn't actually movie. read the book. No. So, okay. So in the movie, remember they go up and there's the Emerald City and it's beautiful and it's green and they go inside and everything's lovely and it's all green and it's beautiful. So in the book, it's a little different. Hmm. In the book, what happens is as you approach the city, you are told that you must put these glasses on. And you put the glasses on and they actually lock on your head so that you cannot remove them. And the glasses are green. Hmm. So that when you look at the, the 
city, it looks like it is this glowing, beautiful emerald green, but the, the buildings look like any other building. Actually, they're just gray, but you have these glasses on. So you do not know this thing. And I feel like that's generally how we walk around when we think about uncertainty. In general, we think that the future is much more predictable than it is. In general, when we think about, for example, our own successes or our own ability to figure out what's going to happen, we underplay the role of luck. Um, So we do not see that for what it is. We generally oversell our knowledge. We think we know more than we actually do. So there's all this uncertainty in the system. Now, when you play poker, it's kind of in your face. So I don't know how much, how much do you know about Texas Hold'em? Do you know anything about it? I don't play any of that stuff. I'm, um, I'm dyslexic and I have dyscalculia. I have a number of these things they call learning differences. Annie, I call it all dysphuclia. (laughs) But anyway, as a result of that, at least for me, um, things like poker, uh, any of those sorts of uh, kind of the, those skilled like games, it all feels like math to me. Mm. So I've never gambled. Really I've never played poker. I've never done any of those things because it it feels like some cross between yeah math, uh, a, a Rubik's cube, and a hockey puck to the nuts. <laughs> so that that's interesting. I bet you if I got a hold of you and taught you some poker, I could help you. You would be that I could get you to see it differently because poker is actually very much storytelling. Is what it actually is. I would pay you a gigantic amount of money for an hour long poker lesson just just for the thrill of being taught by you. <laughs> so, I mean, there, and by, by the way, there is some math involved in poker. I don't want I don't want to say there's there's actually quite a bit of math in po- involved in poker. But what makes a poker player great is really being able to listen to narrative and understand narrative within the game. That's for another discussion. Anyway, my mm. point about poker and uncertainty is that you're constantly confronted with kind of what these two sources are that I just mentioned of uncertainty, that the first being luck and the second being uh, hidden information or unknown information. So why are you always confronted with luck? Well, let's say that in, in Texas Hold'em, you get dealt, dealt two cards and those are your private cards. And then there's three cards that everybody shares that come down face up in the center of the table. That's called the flop. Then, so you get dealt your two cards privately, you bet. Then these three cards come down. But we all share the same three cards that are in the those middle. Three card, right. So and then I take you those three cards and I add the two that I have. You and add that's them my to hand. your hand, which and the, the two cards that you have are private to you. Right. And then there's okay, a fourth card, which is called the turn. And then you bet again. And then there's a fifth card. So imagine that the flop has come down. Okay. All right. There's 52 cards in a deck. I'm going to do a little easy math with you. Thank there's you. 52 cards in a deck. I know what my two cards are, so I've seen them, yep. and I know what these three shared cards are in the middle. So the total number of cards that I have laid my eyes on are five, mm-hmm. which means that on that fourth card that's going to come down, there are 47 possible cards that could hit, because those are the 47 cards that I haven't seen. That you haven't seen. So now notice that when I'm making a decision, I must confront that fact that I do not know what the card is that will come. Do I need to hold 47 futures in my head at once? No, because uh, I can group them together in some way, right? Which is what we can do those with futures, with the type of futures that we deal with in our private decision-making. But so what do I mean by grouping them? I could group them by suit. I could say, well, let me imagine if a club were to hit. So now I've put them all into a category that all are relatively 
the same to me in terms of the way I might think about the card. There's another whole category, which uh, poker players call a blank. If someone wants to sound like a really good poker player, they can use this term. It will it'll show, show that they're in the in-group. So a blank is a card that does not affect the hand. So as an example, if uh, the three cards on on the board were a king, a queen, and a jack, those are all pretty big cards that can make straights and stuff like that. If a two came on the next card, that we would call that a blank. It doesn't change any, it doesn't really change the possibilities for what you could beat me with in any way that I would really want to consider. So you have this whole cat, like twos and threes and sixes, and all those cards are going to be blanks. So now I can because have they that won't affect the out, they won't affect the outcome of the hand. They're not really going to affect the outcome of the hand. Uh, they don't affect if, if if I if I'm thinking about your hand and whether my hand is better than yours. That card doesn't change anything about it. Whereas if there are two clubs on the board and now a club hits, that could really drastically change things. So I want to keep that as a separate category. So anyway, I can and get how, these how many people are playing Annie typically? It depends. Um, anywhere between two and eight. And does that this may be a dumb question, but does it matter as you're calculating? what could yes. happen because the number of cards are in different places now. Right. So it does, that doesn't matter because that from my matter. perspective, it, so the way it matters is that the more people that are in the hand with me, the more likely that one of those cards that might affect somebody's hand actually affects at least one of them because there's, so in other words, if I'm against just you and a club hits, the likelihood that I'm going to lose to a flush in general is lower than if four people are in the hand with me and a club hits. Because now there's four people who could, that could have helped. But as far as the cards that I'm dealing with, it doesn't matter because all of, all I care about is from my perspective. You may, you all may know what your cards are, but from my perspective, I don't know about 47 of them. And so any of those 47 could hit could from anywhere, my perspective. Yeah. Right? I and it's a little bit of a mind bender. And actually when I used to teach poker, they had, people would have problems with that, right? Because mm. they'd be like, well, well, but. Chris has certain cards, so shouldn't I count those? And I'm like, but you can't see those. So you have to leave them open as possibilities for the next card that could come. And so regardless of the number of the people playing, there's still 47 cards that could show up. Exactly. And you, as a strategic player, are thinking about how to deal with the, the various buckets these, these 47 could show up in. So you're, you're beginning to, you're, you're playing forward. So by preparing That's for what right. could come next, you're sort of building possibilities of what your future hand might look like yes exactly thank you that's such a beautiful way to put it i'm going to record that and carry it around with me that well, was really good we're on a pot we're doing a podcast you can keep it forever <laughs> yeah you didn't even know see already you're playing poker well and you're teaching me so thank you right so the point is the point about that is that i have to hold all, all those possibilities in my head at once and i have to be thinking when i make a decision now how is that what what does that look like under those different futures that might occur, right? So how much money might I win or gain under those futures? Or I might be setting up a play if one of those futures were to occur. I might do something now that allows me to do something later, but I have to be sort of thinking about all those things at once. So I'm, I always have it in mind that the future is uncertain. The other thing that I always have on my, in my mind is that um, I don't know much about what you have. So there's just a whole bunch of information I don't know. And I may have some ideas about it, but I have to hold that pretty loosely because as you kind of do stuff, you're telling me a story about your hand. And now I'm going to be building a model of your hand. And 
there's also things I don't know about the way that you personally might play certain cards. So I could take two different people and hand them the exact same cards and they would play them quite differently because of tendencies that have to do personally with them. Some people are risk takers. Some people aren't. Some people really like to push people around and be aggressive. Some people are more passive, so on and so forth. So what I'm trying to do is build a model of you, but my model of you is going to be imperfect. And my, my model of what your cards are, the idea of what I think your cards are going to be imperfect. Uh, and what makes somebody an expert in poker is that I'm going to be better at getting closer to what we would call ground truth. What are your actual cards? Hmm. I'm going to get closer to predicting what the thing is you would actually do given the cards that you have. Like if you have a pair, I'm going to be better at predicting if you'd raise or if you'd fold or if you'd try to bluff. I'm going to get better. I'm going to be better than most people at handling all those different futures and kind of having a plan in place for all of them and recognizing what the probabilities of those futures occurring are. Okay. So that's the poker thing. Why is that so relevant to COVID? Well, do you know what the fall is going to look like? I have no fucking idea. (laughs) Right. That's what I know for sure. The things you knew, you thought that you knew about COVID or treatments or whatever in March, how much of that stuff till, still holds today? Um, right. A lot of it's changed. A lot um, of it's changed. Things I thought about America are different. Yep. Exactly. Certainly things that I thought about race are different. Certainly things I thought about um, police and law enforcement are different. And, you know, if I kept going, it, I'd, I'd be going for a while. <laughs> right. <laughs> Exactly. And we do get arrogant as human beings, right? We do Mm -hmm. sort of get to a place where, hey, man, we know what's up. We think we know. We think tomorrow's going to be a lot like today, and which Mm -hmm. was a lot like yesterday. And we're we're animals that like habit. Yeah. Think about the divide between March 12th and March 13th this year. There are a whole bunch of people walking on on March 12th who thought March 13th was going to look exactly like March 12th. And then... uh, in my state, we locked down. That was a big change. So, so this is why I think that poker is a really good model for decision-making, but actually figuring out how to do well in this environment with coronavirus is also a really great opportunity hmm. to become a better decision-maker because we can, it's like someone, you know, those glasses that they clipped on and on them in the Wizard of Oz, someone just yanked them off our faces and said, I'm sorry, you've been walking around thinking the world is really stable and really predictable and the status quo is going to hold and that you know so much more than you actually do and that the future is so much more predictable than it actually is and that somehow you should be able to determine the exact thing that's going to happen and guarantee it to people. You hear that people, I guarantee this is the way it will work out. And now I just yanked those glasses off your face and you're seeing that the world isn't green anymore. It's actually a different color. And so you're seeing the uncertainty now. So what I think happens is that we kind of think like, here's coronavirus and there's so much uncertainty and we kind of know it. And then we had this idea that somehow if you looked on that continuum, that the decision-making environment that we normally operate in during not a pandemic is somehow very, very far away from this environment that we're in now. And if all all that people need to realize is it's a budding, 
it's just far away enough for us to get the glasses back on and like fool ourselves. But actually it's like right next door because here's, here's how we know that that has to be true. People own stocks and bonds at the same time. They don't own just one stock, right? Otherwise I'd be really good. I would have bought Google when it was going up and then I would have sold it when it was going down to go buy Apple for a little while, you know, so on and so forth. But I have lots of different right, stuff. You have a you have a portfolio strategy and we have high risk shit here and we decide what percentage that's going to be. And we have low risk shit over here. And we decide yeah. and we decide what to do in the middle. Because and- we don't know. Here's here's another thing. I have fire insurance on my house. Why do I have that? Because I don't there's some chance in the future that there's a fire, but I don't really know there's going to be a fire. But I put insurance because I'm sort of trying to deal with the fact that I want to be covered for a future in which there is a fire and a future in which there is not simultaneously. So, so let me let me ask you this then, if because I, I I'm I just want to know how your brain works. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, open the door at least a little. Um, no, I am. I'm trying. Is the purchase of fire insurance, Annie, a bet on a fire? Mm. What, what, like, how do you think about if, if every decision is in some way a bet, how does that work in your head? Sure. So it depends a little bit on the way that you are colloquially using the term bet. So I think colloquially, the, the thing we think of is, is that we're placing some bet on a particular future unfolding. Okay. So uh, in this particular case, the bet is that your house won't burn down. Otherwise, you wouldn't live in it. Right. That's like obvious. You go live in a house that you didn't think was going to burn down. Right. So so the bet is that you're there's a high enough probability, given the risk, that you'll live in this house that has some possibility, like some probability of burning down, but it's low enough that you're willing to live in it and sort of put your life into it and bet on it. In that context, when we make a decision to buy a house or rent an apartment or choose to live somewhere, we are betting that it's a safe place to hang our hat and and have a meal and and go to sleep. We are betting that that decision, given the resources that we have to invest, will uh, in general advance us toward our goals, whatever our goals are. Okay, could you say all that again, just a little slower for me? We're betting that... That given the resources that I have available, in other words, what I can afford, a resource would be where I can live, that would be constraint, right? Given Given the constraints of that investment or that bet, that the place that I choose will advance me toward my goals, which I assume include my house not burning down, which I assume include me being happy there. But th- th- you do have this constraint of the resources, right? So uh, there are some houses that are more likely to burn down than others. For example, the electrical could be old, but you may not have the resources be- to be able to bring that to a place where you are really reducing the probability of it burning down. So given the resources that you have, it's kind of the best bet that you could make. This is why every decision is a bet because there's always several possible futures that could unfold. You have you have limited resources and limited knowledge and you're in a probabilistic way deciding what do I think, what do I think the option is for me to put my resources in that's going to be more likely in a probabilistic way to advance me toward the goals that I want, which is the decision. I want to live in this house because probabilistically, I think it's le- it's not likely to burn down. But then you have a companion to a bet, which is called the hedge. You've heard about hedging your bets. 
So basically what a hedge is, is you're looking at all the different ways that the future could unfold. And you identify some that if the future were to unfold that way, it would really have a high impact on your life, negatively speaking. So if my house burns down, this is really bad. I I may not have the money to replace it. And then I don't, and I can't, then I can't buy a new place. And, um, you know, boom, like that's it, right? So we can look across the possible futures. I've made this bet that my house won't burn down. That's why I'm putting my resources into the house. But then I also see this other path that the future could take where something bad happens to my house. Then I can buy insurance, which will mostly, I won't have to actually exercise the insurance. But in the case that I do, it's going to mitigate the impact of that downside outcome. So this is the weird thing about hedges that I think is so interesting is that there's kind of three features. The first, I just said, it has to mitigate the impact of a downside outcome. The second thing is it costs something. So the the fire insurance is a cost. I've got to pay. I've got to pay for the privilege of being able to mitigate the downside, right? And so that in itself is also a bet, right? I'm betting it's worth it. Okay. So I'm betting that money that I'm going to invest in the hedge is worth it. But here's the really the really interesting thing about a hedge. When you don't actually have to use it, you feel stupid for having gotten it. And this is where I think there's this really interesting paradox, which so it sort of fits into this broad category of something I call the paradox of experience, which is that you need experience in order to become a better decision maker, but any single experience could interfere with the lessons that you learn because there's many many possible futures but only one past. And once we know the past that occur, we sort of think of it as inevitable. And then we regret having done anything that would plan for any other future. So if I buy fire insurance and my house never burns down, I feel dumb for having the insurance. If I want to get married outside, right? So um, and I, I'm, um, I pick a month, which is generally pretty sunny. So I, let's say I pick June. I say, okay, I want to have an outdoor wedding in June. The weather's usually pretty good. But I recognize that there's this path where it rains and the weather's horrible, right? So I say, okay. All right, so I see that there's this other way that things could go. The first question I ask myself is, do I still want to bet on an outdoor wedding? And the answer may be no. Um, I don't want to take the risk of bad weather, and so I'm going to move myself inside. But my answer may, may be yes. I, I think there's a good enough chance it's going to be nice weather. And this is my dream. And I want to I live this dream that I have of having an outdoor wedding. So then what I could do is I could hedge. And the hedge would be to rent a tent that I set up somewhere on the location where I'm planning to have my outdoor wedding. Um, and if it happens to rain, we all go in the tent and that's where the wedding is. But inevitably what happens is that when it doesn't rain and the weather is beautiful, you feel dumb for having spent the money on the tent. And I think that it's a really interesting paradox because you're actually doing something really smart, which is imagining all the cards that could come and preparing for them. But when you find out the card that actually gets dealt, all the other cards disappear from you and you feel stupid for having planned for all those other things in the first place. Mm. So we want to avoid that trap. As you're talking, I'm thinking, am I either not self-aware or so different because as you're talking 
I don't feel bad, me personally, when I do the kinds of things that you just described, the tent as an example, I don't feel bad about having put the tent up and it being nice out. I, I just see that as, hey, look, sometimes you get shitty weather and we got to be re- ready for eventualities. So it cost us whatever it cost us to rent and put up the tent. But to your point, the smart thing to do was to hedge the bet. And I'm really glad it didn't rain. And so what the fuck? We lost some money, but we were smart. That's I, I'm, I think I'm more that way. So I think that there's a lot of temperamental differences. Like people come into the world with different temperaments. As, as it relates to sort of these things that, that correlate with good decision-making, right? Like, so, so the ability to be comfortable with many different futures and not needing to know, as an example, would be one of them. How open-minded you might be to others' points of views, right? Like, I, I think that that's true. But I think about it as, like, if you imagine a normal distribution of decision, you know, these kind of qualities, one of which might be how much regret do you feel? for uh, having hedged something that you didn't need to. It turned out in the end, because you did need to, but you di- it turned out it looks like you didn't need to. So we could imagine having a normal distribution and you know, out at the left tail or at people who just sort of temperamentally aren't kind of born there. And out at the right tail, you have people who are like, you know, the most open-minded and, and compassionate and, and uh, rational and all of these things. And then everybody in between. What I think is that through really helping people to understand what goes into great decision-making. I don't know that you can get somebody and take them from the left tail and get them over to the right tail. I don't know you could fundamentally shift someone from like pretty, really, really close-minded to totally, totally open-minded. I think that that would actually be uh, quite a challenge. That being said, if you shift them a bit, the, I, I think that is worth all the, the trying in the world. Because if you take them from very, very close-minded to a little bit less close-minded or even a little bit more less close-minded and you kind of shift them over toward um, these kind of temperaments and features and, and ways of thinking that help you be a better decision maker, boy, not only is that great for that person in terms of the outcomes that they're gonna have in their life, but it's great for society because that's getting multiplied. So it gets multiplied across every decision that that person is going to make in their whole life. So that's amazing for them. And then you multiply that across many, many people in a society. And I think, boy, are, are you doing a lot better? Because, because the thing is like, it's sort of at its core, the only two things that determine how your life turns out are luck. I can't control when I was born or who I was born to or where I was born or a whole bunch of random stuff that happened in my life. I have no control over that. But the other thing that determines how your life turns out is the quality of your decisions. So I may not be able to take you from really not even knowing that you're making decisions, which is actually a a lot of people's position to, to someone who's really aware that you're making decisions and has some framework for thinking about those that, that helps you to be a little bit better at this stuff. If, if that's what I can do, I just massively improved your life because that is going to compound over time. And I think that that's really what, what we're trying to do is to, is to get people to be a little bit more comfortable. But, uh, you know, on the hedge thing, like it's, you're fine with the fire insurance, but like I can actually give you an example of a hedge that we didn't take. I think it was due a little bit to this problem of, you know, how do we feel about it in the aftermath if you don't actually use it? 
So I was kind of thinking about, all right, it's like December, January, and we're starting to get intelligence reports that there's a virus afoot. And we're seeing some of what's happening in Wuhan, obviously. And the shit's going on in the news. Yeah. Right? It was on it was on the news, if I'm not mistaken, plus it or was. minus late November, early December. Yeah. So it seems like oh, things could be really bad. So one response of a government might be to start stockpiling PPE and to start really spending a ton of money to create uh, an excess of tests and the things that you need for tests like swabs and testing infrastructure. Now, that's going to cost money. Remember, I said a hedge has a cost. But it's going to mitigate the impact of the worst of the downside possibilities, which would be the virus comes to our shores, there starts to be community spread, you start to see ICUs overwhelmed, so on and so forth. And interestingly enough, obviously, in comparison to the national debt, the cost to do so would have been nominal. In comparison to GDP, the cost to do so would have been nominal. So I think that probably would have been a really good hedge. So why why did so, not yeah, only why that, didn't we make right. that call? Why didn't we make the hedge? Because the future is uncertain, and if it didn't happen, I think that people look silly having spent that money. They feel like they have to justify the spend. So this is yeah. like on a global scale. Like, why did you stockpile three gazillion tests for a virus that never made it to our shores? Can you you can imagine the collective saying that, right? Yeah. That across the country, they're like. Why did you spend all this money on this stuff we didn't need? Well, and to put a finer point on it, I, I think there were some people who were critical of people like Bill Gates, mm-hmm. who for years were saying this was a big fear. And he said he feared this more than uh, a nuclear horrible outcome happening and and so forth. And, and, and I think many people, uh, myself included, I mean, I, I, I admire the shit out of Bill Gates, but. I just, it, we haven't had one of these things in my lifetime. The ones that we have had have been not great, but it, they, they haven't been. out, right? Well, some SARS. way or another, right? SARS we dealt with. Like, so, okay, I don't know. We just have our experience, right? I didn't see it as a big problem. Right. And I think heading into the new year, it became a concern for sure. But I think, I, I, I guess the point being, it appears to me that many of us, underest myself included underestimated this thing yeah the thing i find interesting is our governments and i i put an s on it because it's both federal and state and and also local i mean we've seen how important local government is in this thing uh in a way that some of us certainly myself um uh, uh couldn't appreciate before but all that is to say um there were lots of folks who had planned for these sorts of things and scenarioed them out and so forth and so on. And yet, even in spite of all of that, we we didn't prepare it anywhere near the level that we could. And I think a lot of people think, and of course, hindsight's in 2020, but yeah. we should have. So uh, how does all that, how do you fit all that in your brain? What does it look like <laughs> through your lens? Yeah. So, so I think, I think there's a, there's so many different things that are sort of colliding there. First of all, we're, we're pretty bad at just sort of forecasting probabilistically in the first place. And when we do think about the probability of different futures occurring, we tend not to think about them 
probabilistically uh, in terms of impact enough. So while it's true that a pandemic coming in any particular year, the probability of that is super, super low. The impact is really, really, really high. Um, and so we want to actually think about both of those things as part of a really good decision process is to not just think about the possibilities that could occur and think about the probability that each of those possibilities occur, but you have to think about what the payoff is, which is impact, Right. how good or bad. Because if your house burns down, it's right. a pretty bad fucking day. Exactly. So you have to think about the magnitude as well. And you can imagine that you might prefer a higher probability, but lower magnitude, poor outcome to be sitting in the futures that could occur over a rarer but incredibly high sort of risk of ruin type of, of outcome that might be also sitting in that future. And you can imagine how you have to balance those things out. Th that's the number one problem is I think we're kind of bad at that. So in the, in the case of a fire, I don't, I don't have the stats in front of me, obviously, but I would it's imagine really low probability. most of us don't experience a fire in our house no. in our life, right? No, but the reason the reason why we tolerate flat fire insurance is because once something becomes sort of a status quo decision, we tend to tolerate it. Hmm. So everybody has fire insurance. And in fact, your mortgage company will force you to have such a thing. So that allows you to kind of offload some of the psychic distress when you don't actually use the hmm. fire insurance because someone made me do it. Hmm. Does that, if that yeah. makes sense? Yeah. So, yeah. So there's that problem is number one. Then number two, we have this thing called status quo bias. It's a little bit what you just mentioned, which is we think that things as they are today are the way that they are tomorrow. So uh, you said something in there, which is, yeah, we haven't had a pandemic in a long time. And the ones that I can remember sort of petered out and weren't that bad. And so since that was the result for the, those ones, obviously this will be the results for these ones. And we tend to over index on that kind of thing as opposed to leaving the possibilities open or uh, doing the counterfactuals for something like SARS. Because we could think about as SARS was sort of budding up as a coronavirus that had that had passed from, from I believe, a bat, right? A another one that had come from a bat, I think. Not 100% sure of that. Hey, we should just leave the bats alone. <laughs> yeah, no, we'd leave the bats alone. But as SARS was coming on the shore, it could have turned into something like this, right? So we can think about all the possibilities for the way that a pandemic could unfold, one of which is what we actually observed with SARS, but in there was something that looked more like what we're experiencing now with SARS-CoV-2. And even with what we're experiencing now with COVID-19, you could imagine all the other ways it could have happened, right? So uh, it could never have exploded in China and just died out. And then we wouldn't even know about it. So you want to be thinking what's called counterfactually, which is not just about the thing that occurred, but also all the different ways it could have occurred if you were thinking about it from the standpoint of a new decision, right? So um, because otherwise you get over-indexed on, well, nothing much happened with SARS and Ebola went away and MERS ended up being a small thing and, and that kind of thing. But, and then in that category of we get really indexed to uh, things that have happened recently to us, we can actually look at the difference in terms of disaster preparedness between a place like America and a place like South Korea or Japan. So South Korea, the last really bad thing that happened to them was indeed SARS. And so what you saw with South Korea was once they saw this, they had all sorts of hedges in place. So I think they had twice the number of hospital beds per capita hmm. than the U.S. has. Wow. I th that was in direct, direct response to this. This, this is SARS. the thing that they were really concerned about. Everybody wears masks. Just accept it. 
You wear masks when there isn't SARS running around. If you're sick, you put a mask on. So lots and lots of masks. That's been true in big parts of Asia for a very long time. Because of SARS, exactly. Uh, even before SARS. Well, I before mean, that, they've had a few other outbreaks. I remember going to, uh, my first t- trip to Japan would have been in the early to mid-90s. There you go. And um, yeah, it was, uh, my memory anyway, is that if you had a cold or something like that, you just put on a mask. You I, just put I, on I a mask. I remember seeing them. In Japan, they don't shake hands. That's helpful. Then South Korea very quickly had testing capacity. They had contact tracers. Why? Because they've dealt with this before. So they were incredibly prepared because they were probably overestimating the probability that this became bad. They were probably making the the reverse cognitive error that actually in this particular case, when you have something high risk, you'd rather over, you'd rather over prepare than under prepare because the the downside of over preparing is you spend some money on tests. It's like a hedge. The downside of underpreparing, of course, is Florida. So uh, now, if you look at America, what is America really super duper prepared for? Natural disasters like hurricanes. Why? Because we had Katrina. And Katrina was a disaster in terms of the national response. And we said, we got to get our act together and we have to be ready. And we did pretty well with Irma and we did pretty well with Maria and we did pretty well with these hurricanes hitting our coast because we had dealt with Katrina and that was kind of in the zeitgeist, right? Like that was in the national memory of things that we would tolerate being overly prepared for. So we're only going to tolerate being overly prepared, overly prepared for something that we feel has a high enough probability of actually occurring. Otherwise, we're going to feel it's a waste of money. And this is, I think, how you end up having the national stockpile become in disrepair. A lot of the PP was rotting. We don't really didn't really have testing infrastructure and so on and so forth because um, it felt like a waste of money. It felt like having fire insurance. It wasn't high enough. Yeah. On the, we, uh, I, I love some of your language on the different futures yeah. that we saw as possible, not even probable. Let's draw a distinction between those two words that you've been using as well. In those, so in the realm of possible different futures that we, the United States of America, were looking at, based on our experience, uh, we were optimizing around things like natural disasters, of course. Post 9-11, same thing. We didn't feel prepared for terrorism. Super prepared for terrorist attack. We're all over it now, I fucking hope. Um, uh, Et cetera, right? And so, um, to use your phrase, over-index. Yeah. And so, how do we get smarter about understanding, uh, let me use this word, it might not be the right one, Annie, real possibilities and risks as opposed to our biases around them. It's a simple example, right? You hear people who are afraid to fly that get in a car all the time. Yeah, that's a, that's a and fun you hear, one. Oh, well, you're more likely to die in a car than you are in a plane. Right, which- right, 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 right. That's it. By the way, that's, that's the illusion of control. Do you want to know what that is? I don't fly the plane, but I, I, I drive the car. Right. And so I feel like I have more control in the car. But my point in all that is, I certainly don't know, and I don't think the average person knows how much risk do I take when I get on a plane? Mm. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. How does that compare to the risk of driving my bike or being driving my car? I don't really know. I didn't Google any of that shit. I just decided I was 
back when we used to fly, <laughs> I was, I wanted to go to New York for a four day weekend. So I'm fucking going. Um, and so I guess my point is how do we have a more open and a more fact based uh, approach to looking at possible and therefore probable futures so that we maybe get smarter about stack ranking them and therefore deciding what level of investments around hedges we need? Oh, gosh, that's such a great question. So let me take it at the individual level first, I think, just to kind of understand what a really good decision process looks like. So I, I think before I told you there are kind of two things that influence the way that things turn out for you. In other words, how your life turns out. The first one is luck and the second is is imperfect information. So luck is kind of interesting. So we can think about luck as I have some sort of decision that I want to make and I have options that I can choose among. And each option bears with it a unique set of possibilities for how it might turn out. Unique in the sense, uh, in a variety of senses. It, it, if I compare option A to option B, it could have different possibilities in the set for A than B. It could be that I have the same set of possibilities, but there's different probabilities of each of those occurring. Uh, it could be that I have the same set of possibilities, but they have different impacts. The magnitude of those things is different. Um, so this kind of tells me now, if I can sort of think about those two options, I want to understand what that set looks like. And then when I choose an option, what I've done is I've decided on the set of possibilities and how probable each of those things is to occur. Which thing actually happens? That's the intervention of luck. So I can, mm -hmm. let's say that I choose, I choose an option that's going to work out in some way great 98% of the time and 2% of the time it's going to work out crap. That means that 2% of the time it's going to work out crap. And I have no control over when that 2% is going to happen. If there is a card that is only going to be dealt 2% of the time that will ruin my chances to win the hand, I will see that card get dealt 2% of the time and I have no control over it. So what, for people who say I make my own luck, stop saying that because you don't. Hmm. What, what you do is you've decided among options that have different influences of luck associated with them, but the influence of luck itself, you have no control over. Can you say that last piece again? Yes. So I cannot make my own luck. What I can do is what I'm doing is choosing different options. And each of those options have a, has luck, uh, the likelihood of luck influencing me in a way I like or don't like differently. So does that mean if I could just try to make sure I understand when I'm making decisions, part of what I'm doing, is there some ladder or tree or hierarchy in my head as I go through a decision path and each subsequent decision, I'm essentially as part of that decision, I'm trying to put myself in a position to make myself lucky. I'm right. I'm trying to make it so that luck will have the most positive will be likely will be more likely to have a positive influence on me than than a negative one. Right. If I if I'm in my car and I'm coming up to a stoplight. Stopping is a good idea because you're less likely to get in an accident than running through it. Thank you. Okay. And that's why we all do yes. it. <laughs> that's why that quote social contract right. exists. But here's the deal. Some percentage of the time that you are sitting at a stoplight, you will get in an accident. And some percentage of the time that you proceed through a stoplight without stopping, you will not get in an accident. Whether it occurs right. on that particular time is wholly a matter of luck that you have no control over. In other words, if you're sitting there at the stoplight doing the right thing, waiting for it to turn green and... Someone can mash into you. Right. 
and it's going to happen some percentage of the time and you have no control over it. What you do have control over is choosing the option to stop rather than go because the probability of something bad happening to you when you stop is lower than the probability of something bad happening to you when you go through the red. But, but luck, you can't control whether it actually, whether something bad happens on that particular iteration. It will, you're right. just going to observe it at some percentage of the time, which brings us to the other piece of the puzzle. We can think about, we have some sort of set of beliefs and those beliefs actually inform which option we think we're supposed to choose. So it informs everything we think. What do we think the options are that are available to us? It, what are our goals? What are we even trying to accomplish? Live or die in the car. Um, don't get in an accident, right? Get there on time, right? That we have all these different goals that, that are going to be in our head that we're trying to accomplish. We think about what the options are for us achieving those goals. We think about what the resources are that would constrain the options that might be able to choose. And then for each option, we then imagine what the possibilities are, how much each of those possibilities, if they were to unfold, would impact our gaining ground or losing ground in relation to our goal, and then how likely those things are to occur. That's all informed by our beliefs, right? Like those are all guesses we're making. So the beliefs are what tell you what option you eventually choose. As opposed to uh, facts or well, data. Well, Facts are in your beliefs. Or are facts part of my beliefs? I see. Okay. They're part of your beliefs. They're things you believe to be true of the world. Okay. Right. So I'm not talking about beliefs like, uh, I'm talking about beliefs in a more academic sense as opposed to like belief in God, although that that's a belief, but it's generally, what are your knowledge like and belief beliefs that allow- that generally cars are safe. And so I'm safe in that a That is car. a belief. I have that belief. Right. Uh, but, is, but you also, it is also a belief for you that two plus two equals four. Now that happens to comport with fact. But that's a belief that you hold. So some of my beliefs are factual and some of them are opinions. Right. Some of your beliefs are accurately representing the what is actually true of the world, uh, some to a greater degree and some to less, and some perfectly. That's how you can think about it. And our, our peril lies in our confusion about which is where. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> because that most of them are sitting on a spectrum. Yes. Most things are not two plus two equals four. And we actually tend to confuse those things. And so we don't hold our beliefs loosely in relation to knowledge because we think of them as fact when they actually aren't. So that is a very deep point you just made. Okay, so now we can think about, okay, so we have these beliefs. The beliefs are the foundation. That's the, the house that your decision-making house is sitting on your foundation. And the beliefs inform all these things about what option you choose. So you can think about, if you think about the space between your beliefs and the option you choose, that's the influence of hidden information. That's the influence. The space between your beliefs, beliefs and the option you choose. That space between is? That's where hidden information intervenes. I see. Why? Because some of the stuff you believe is inaccurate. So, and that will inform, that's going to inform your decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's just a whole bunch of crap you don't know. So the foundation of your house is a pro you wouldn't you would if the inspector came and inspected your house they would say do not buy this house because the foundation mm -hmm. has cracks in it that are cracks. inaccuracies <laughs> and also they didn't actually pour it so that so that it was beefy enough for code hmm. so it's inaccurate it's got cracks and there's not enough of it <laughs> so yeah. right yeah. which is the stuff so, you don't know a your foundation is shitty and b it's too small for this house right. <laughs> that's what this is our problem as decision makers <laughs> because what we know really if you think about it would like fit on the head of a pin and what we don't know is like the size of the whole damn universe 
right? I mean, think about it, yes. right? I mean, what what is the unknown? Huh? Right? Okay, think about, and this is what COVID is exposing to us. We just don't know anything. Okay, so now when I think about what are the things that you're supposed to do in order to improve your decision-making? Well, I want to get a really good view of luck. That's part of my beliefs though, but what I, what I believe the influence of luck will be, I need to have an accurate view of that. And then recognize I, beyond that, luck is luck. But what I can do is make sure that I know as much as I can and that my beliefs are as accurate as possible. And here's where we get into a little bit of a conundrum. That in order to achieve that goal, do you agree that would be a good goal? Let me just start there. Would that be a good goal if you could fix this foundation? That you repair all the cracks and you make it beefier? Would that make you... Do you think that's good to do? Sure. It doesn't sound possible to me, but I'll I'll play along with you. (laughs) It seems like a good thing to do. And I guess in some sense, we're all trying to do that all the time. Ha, you'd think. Right? We're not not trying to learn and grow. Sadly, we say we uh, are. But then what do we do? Okay, so we're full of shit about that. how How much are people, think about social media, how much are people actively seeking out ideas that are different than their own? You know, I know this gets talked about a lot and- are Republicans spending a lot of time watching MSNBC? Yeah, I, I understand all of that. And I, I, I do find it troubling. So I'm not a member of either of the political major political parties yeah. in this country. I don't mentally identify as one or the other. And the challenge I have with sort of the, the way we generally do this is uh, we yell at each other about high level stuff and we don't get specific. And we had David Crane on the podcast from Govern for California, you know, recently. And I was we were talking about Black Lives Matter and, and he made the stunning statement that current course and speed, he doesn't think much is going to change because of Black Lives Matter. And I said, well, h- how can you say that, David? And he meant it from the context of things changing politically mm-hmm. that that forward an equality agenda. At least that was my interpretation of what he said, okay? And and what that what he then explained to me Annie was that there's no specificity in what's going on right now. And so he says, if you want to do something about black lives, you got to find out why black lives are getting fucked up. And so you got to get into it. Okay, what's wh- where do black people live? What's going on with schools there? What's going on with education there? What's going on with opportunity and entrepreneurship and crime and 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 healthcare and 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 right? If you want to get into it, when there's no specific ask and we just yell high level crap at each other, you know, you, you, guns is a great example, right? You're either for it or you're against it. Well, that's dumb. But we can't have a specific conversation. Okay, what do we want to have happen around guns in our country? What When somebody gets sick or hurt, what do we want to have happen? How do we want to pay for that? We don't get into anything specific. We just yell about the high-level stuff. So that's sort of my frustration with that. And then the other one that I have a hard time with is I deeply love people who are on far ends of either spectrum left and right in our country. Deeply love them. People I know are great people. And so I guess that is to say for me, it's like it it opens my mind up to the fact that I can't be so binary about a lot of the stuff. If this person that I love deeply has this point of view about this thing on either the left or the right that I think is insane, and I know they're a great person and a smart person and somebody who cares and so forth and so on, 
then I need to listen. Yeah. So I think that this is, that's, this is where we think about this decision-making house sitting on this foundation and this really big thing that we can change, which is the quality of our beliefs. We actually are wired in the short run to not do that for a lot of what you said, but let me just sort of say some other things in that space. I think that everybody identifies as their long-term goal. I would like to become a better decision maker. I think that's pretty anodyne and non-controversial. And if I said to people, okay, well, do you agree that if you're going to become a better decision maker in the long run, you may have to find out that there are some things that you believe today that are true that actually turn out to not be true? Do you agree that that will have to happen to you? And they'll say, yes, of course. And I would be open-minded to that because I recognize that if I have an inaccurate belief and this inaccurate belief is informing my decisions, which is the point that I was making, then the quality of my decisions will necessarily suffer because the input will not be high quality. So I can have as good a decision-making process as you could possibly imagine in the world. And if I'm inputting inaccurate information into it, I shall, I shall not have good decisions come out of it. So I would, yes, I would, I would, I think that everybody would agree. I would like the, the, my beliefs to be more accurate. And that means I'm going to have to find out that some, some things I believe are wrong eventually. Um, and that will make it so that I have decision, better decisions going forward, which is a, a goal that I have. But this is, this is the problem that we all have. When we're actually confronted with that information, we actually swat it away. And that's if we're confronted with it. So if we think about this little tiny stuff that we know, right, which is like fits on the head of a pin, and then the universe of stuff we don't know, what we'd ideally be doing is taking a random walk through the universe of stuff we don't know. And as we collide with information, we would collide with it with an equally open-minded stance to whatever information we happen to collide with randomly. And that would kind of give us the best view of what's true of the world in general. And we'd find sort of two things in that space. One is uh, we can sort of think of as facts, right? St stuff that's just kind of like true, two plus two equals four. The other thing is that we collide with a lot of different ways that people viewed those facts, mm. okay? So I can give you a fact, for example, about gun violence in America. And I can take two different people and what they interpret those facts to mean can be very disparate, even if they agree on the facts themselves. So there's a two-layered problem. Sometimes people don't agree on the facts, but e even if they do, they may interpret those facts very differently. And what I would like to do to the point of what you said before is if I've got two really smart people who interpret those facts differently, what I'd really love to do is learn why and listen to them with an open mind so that I can then inform my own decisions in the best possible way. And I may end up, you know, agreeing with one more than the other. I, I may end up thinking that the other person really, their interpretation isn't high quality, but I need to understand their interpretation and understand why. Otherwise, I can't really say that I know why I think what I do. So that would be a random walk through that universe of stuff we don't know. Hmm. But cognitively, that's not what we do. I remember in my uh, sort of as a late teenager, early 20s, I remember hearing this expression that has stuck with me. Most people would rather be right than successful. Yes. And I think I think what it's speaking to is this, which is there's some 
narrative, reality, facts, beliefs, interpretations, context, paradigm, whatever descriptor you want to put on it that you and I as human beings develop over time and we get righteous about it. And if we're presented with a choice that says you can be much more successful in life as a human being, as a business person, as a, in, on whatever dimension, but the first thing you need to get is you've been totally fucking wrong about this thing for 15 years. Most people go, fuck you, I'm right. And they continue, uh, you know, and it's that great expression. There are people who have 15 years of experience and there are some people who have one year of experience 15 times. Right. And so is this what your phenomena, is this what you're talking about, Annie? Yes. So we could think about it this way. What really is your identity, but your beliefs about the world, right? And your beliefs about yourself. So the beliefs that we hold, as we define belief before, the things that you think are true of the world, the things that you think are true of yourself, form the fabric out of which your identity is woven. And we can think of almost all sort of cognitive biases, which are all these what we call inside view problems. How do we process the world from inside of our own perspective, as opposed to stepping outside of our own perspective and kind of trying to look out, out at the world without the glasses on, right? What, sort of objectively. Mm -hmm. So it's an inside view, outside view. This is something that Daniel Kahneman talks about a lot. And so we're, we're all sort of processing the world for our own through, through our own perspective. And this is where all the bias lives, like co confirmation bias and availability bias and Dunning-Kruger and better than average effect and all this stuff. And if you think about it, it's all motivated toward keeping your identity intact. I do not want my there to be a hole torn in that fabric and what's holding that fabric together what it's woven of is my beliefs so if if i'm confronted with the idea that a belief that i hold particularly one that is integral to my identity which has high emotional valence for me like gun control for example i will protect so that you shall not tear my identity asunder now the way that we can see that that's true because I could equally say to you, but don't you, in 20 years, you're going to have an identity. Wouldn't you like that to be improved? The answer is that person's not me. I'm worried about me right now. I don't want you to attack me. Because when I say to people, hey, like if I, if I see someone who's like, you know, 40 and I'll say, is, is there some stuff that you believed like really strongly, like really, really had high conviction about it. Uh, is there stuff you believed when you were 20 that you no longer believe today? People are like, how long a list do you want? They, they can list off like a billion things because that 20 year old version of themselves that doesn't need protecting. It's not them anymore. But la last week's version of me or me 15 seconds ago, I have to defend. Right. So if I were to say, and when I talk to people and I say, well, okay, so you've got this really long list of things you believed when you were 20 that you no longer believe today. What do you think when I see you in 20 years, what are the things you believe now that you're going to figure out weren't true? And they're like, nothing. <laughs> you know, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, we're all human. We're, we, we, you know, what are the things you believed about COVID in March that you no longer believe today? That's why I think COVID is such an amazing opportunity for really exploring decision-making because we all know there were things we believed in March that we don't believe today. In March, we didn't think there were asymptomatic transmission. Like, oh, that's a big deal. Now I believe that that's true. 
So we can see how this sort of ends up protecting us. And what that all results in is instead of taking a random walk through the universe of stuff we don't know, we do two things. We tend to shine a flashlight on all the things that agree with us. We hang out with people who kind of affirm our views. We seek out media that will parrot the things we believe back. We end up with neighbors who agree with us. We go to colleges where people hold our views. We so and so forth. So we're constantly reinforcing and colliding with the things that we already believe to be true. And if we happen to, by accident, or maybe even on purpose, collide with information that doesn't agree with us, here's what we do. Hey, listen, I've got a dissertation on why that's a biased view of the world and you totally have your facts wrong. So when somebody who is anti-Trump watches Fox News, they are watching it with the express purpose of calling those people idiots. When someone who is pro-Trump watches MSNBC, they are watching Rachel Maddow with the express purpose of calling her an idiot and talking about why she is wrong in order to actually reinforce their own beliefs. They are not watching her open-minded to hear what the other side has and how they might adjust their views accordingly. Even if they don't, I'm not saying they're going to do a 180. I'm saying they might do a two degree, right? But they're not even willing to budge that two degree. On one hand, Annie, I, I, un, I understand why, as human beings, this is true. We want to be right and we don't want to look stupid and we've got values that we've built on over. I understand why we take these hardened sort of, well, we get to these places. And of course I do too. I'm a human being. That said, you, know, you talk about watching the different news. Okay, well, I try to consume a, a broad spectrum of stuff. So in that spectrum, maybe once a month I go say, what, what? What's Alex Jones doing right now? You know, and so I'll go to InfoWars and I'll I'll spend 15 minutes and I'll listen. Uh, I heard one the other day and he had. Um, Were there like um, lizard people on it or? Yeah, well, he had um, he had Ted Nugent on. And so, you know, 15 minutes of Ted Nugent and, and Alex Jones is quite something. And so I'm like, OK, well, got that. Yeah. So, so <laughs> Don't need to touch that for another month. Right. L- let me put a caveat on this. It's really, really important when you are seeking out uh, viewpoints that disagree with you, that you seek out people who are arguing in good faith. Mm. Like I can think about a spectrum uh, of people. So I don't consider, I could, you know, I think that Alex Jones himself has sort of said that he's performance art. That was his, um, that was his defense in the Sandy Hook case. Right. So let's take him at his face value. Let's take him at his word. He says he's performance art. Um, I don't think he's making arguments in good faith in that case. And and while I think it's really important to go and listen to them for as long as you did just to build a model of the world and understand what might be going on in those corners of Q or Alex Jones or whatever, these I don't consider these people who, who are arguing in good faith. But you still would want to build a model of that because those people exist in the world and you'd want to kind of understand, you want to understand what's kind of going on with that. I would say that... Uh, sort of going across the spectrum, you know, from less liberal to more liberal or whatever, I would say like somebody like David French, who's like very conservative, is arguing good faith. I think that Rachel Maddow is arguing in good faith. So they should be having a conversation with each other. Right. Because while they hold very, very different views, I think they're both truth seekers. I think that they are both trying to figure out what is true of the world. 
and they have different priors. But I think generally they probably agree on the facts and they may interpret those facts differently. And it's really useful for them to have a conversation with each other, despite the fact that they hold very disparate views. Right. So I think that this good faith piece is really, really important. Yeah, I I get that. And also that they're going to take you that way and I'm going to take them that way. And that way, when I hear something that's upsetting, can I give you a recent example? It's sort of screaming in my mind, this whole conversation. One of the people on planet Earth I love the most is a woman who, um, using her words, is a brown gal. And the vast majority of her friends uh, are black and brown. These are her words. And she said, I don't really have very many close white girlfriends. And so she's sharing this with me. You know, all all the conversations we've all been having since George Floyd was killed. And she tells me something that, and I know this woman incredibly well that I had never heard her say before. I said, oh, you know, why is that? And she said, it's exhausting living in the white world. Hmm. And so when I'm with my friends, I don't want to be exhausted by all the white shit. And so just over time, my friends have just, I spend a lot more time with brown and black people because it's exhausting trying to live in the white world. And so I asked what I thought was the obvious question, which is, okay, so why is that? And that blew open a whole series of other things. And I've been delving into this with her ever since. And and I had a whole bunch of knee-jerk reactions when she said it. And I wanted to say those knee-jerk reactions, but I fought myself and I just said, look, hey, asshole, just shut up and listen. Just try to understand, you know who this person is. She's incredibly smart. She's an amazing human being and I love her. This is a shocking thing for me to hear. And so I want to understand more why. And I'm beginning to understand more why. Um, And it changes my point of view. It does. Yeah, you're bringing up something I think that's really important, which is, uh, and I I talk about this in, in my new book, is that I think that most people, when they approach conversations, because of this identity protection piece, They approach the conversation with the intent to convince. So when I'm talking to you, I would like to convince you toward my point of view. Not even to convince you that I'm right. I want to convince you to hold my point of view. Because that will uh, reinforce all the things that I want for my identity, that that I am right, that I am correct and all of these things. But where we really should be coming from is this this idea that uh, cognitive dispersion is actually amazing. I I think if I find out that we both believe the earth is round, I find that quite boring. And there's kind of nothing to be learned from from talking to you. We can both say the earth is round and you say, yes, I believe the earth is round too. And then what's left? What's really interesting is the places where we have what we call cognitive dispersion or dispersion of opinion where, where things are different. And what I should be interacting with, with you is, is not so much to get you to conform to my opinion, but instead to have you convey why you believe what you do to me, such that I could then repeat it back to you in a way that you would say, thank you, you really understand my point of view. And then you would give me the space to convey why I might hold another point of view. And then we may, through that process, we may end up slightly changing. It may not be a 180. It may be a 2%. But that's fine because we're allowed to think different things of the world. It's like, 
that's the thing. We're not allowed to, you're, it's not because most things aren't sitting in fact, right? And we confuse, we confuse opinion and fact all the time. So if you think that two plus two is six, you're going to have so bridge, you know, hopefully you're not building bridges that I have to walk over, right? So, so we, we should be agreeing on two plus two equals four, but there is no agree or disagree when your friend says, I'm exhausted. This is the way that she, it, her experience of the world that she is interpreting. And when you're then discussing that, it's, it's about conveying the information, right? And we want to think about this, this difference between convey and convince and have fewer conversations that are about convince and more conversations that are about convey. And if you interact with the world that way, think about how much more of that information you're going to collide with for two reasons. One is you're actually going to be seeking out understanding other people's points of view that are that are offered in good faith. I'm going to say that again. But the other thing is that people are going to be much more likely to be willing to offer you a point of view that differs than your own because you don't immediately try to convince them of your own. Your reaction isn't to say you're wrong. You haven't thought about this data. Why didn't you think about it from this perspective? Blah, blah, blah. Instead, it's like, oh, that's interesting. I'm curious. Can you explain why? And then people feel that space to disagree. Yes. On that point, I was just talking to um, a dear friend, a man I love deeply who is a Republican, libertarian leaning, a strong, strong supporter of Trump, voted for him, will vote for him again. And he believes um, he believes the president is saving America and taking us in the right direction. And um, he um, leads a, 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 a substantial organization. And he was sharing with me, and we talk about politics all the time, and I agree with him on some things, and I disagree with him on others, and we're somewhere in between on others, and and we we get into it, I think, very healthily. But anyway, he said to me something to the effect of, you know, I really appreciate our conversations because because of the role that I'm in and because of where I live, this guy lives in California, he said, I, I can't have these conversations with very many people. It would ho- It would hurt our company. If I shared some of my opinions uh, more broadly. And so I have to be very careful um, for exactly the reason you just said. And I, I, I found I, I find that horrible, like that we, we should be able to talk substantively about topics and issues and get into it with each other to say, OK, well, tell me more about that. Why do you feel that way? What makes you think that? I want to know that, you know, with with this gal who, who this brown friend of mine who shared this with me, I, it was I was stunned. And so ever since then, I'm just trying to learn how could she feel that way and how many other people like her feel that way. And of course, I've had this cold shower awakening that a lot of people I've talked to uh, who are black and brown feel that way or some variant thereof. And I was not fucking paying attention to that. I wasn't. I wasn't. I don't I'm not I don't think I'm a racist person. I just wasn't paying attention to it for one reason or another. And now I am. And now I'm trying to, you know, at least be part of the conversation and maybe even a smidge part of the solution if, if there's one to, that we can find here together. And so I, 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 I find that liberating, even though it, it uh, sometimes what in this example, my brown friend says or my re- Republican friend says are things that are shocking or upsetting or concerning or whatever descriptor you want to put on it to me for one reason or another. I've tried to teach myself, Annie, to be a person who says, OK, well, tell me more about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we would all be better off if we were conveying and not convincing. Um, 
because I really do like, I'm so obsessed with this issue of what are the beliefs that I have about the world and how do I, how do I make them more accurate? And if I'm not colliding with other points of view, I cannot do it. And I know that I cannot accomplish it. I've actually cut off the road to being able to do that for myself, aside from just not listening to other people. And generally, I think it's not nice to yell at people and try to convince them that you're right all the time. I don't think that that makes for great relationships. But just from a pure decision-making standpoint, and this happens on teams and businesses all the time, right? Where, where dissent gets hushed. And it's not really about conveying. It's about convincing people on the team to come over to your point of view and so on and so forth. And that just hurts decision-making across the board. And in the end, you know, kind of to the point of all the stuff that's been happening, whether, you know, the murder of George, George Floyd or, you know, the coronavirus or the political landscape or whatever, this is where the stuff that you're doing on an individual level really propagates across society. Because on an individual level, better decisions lead to better lives. But that then leads to a better society. That, that's the thing, is that you have to be creating better decision-making and getting people to start building these better models of the world and start being able to have these conversations so that they can really understand without convincing, again, when people are doing it in good faith. And that's the only way to actually progress society forward. That's the only way to progress your, your decision-making forward. Which, just to one point, the Alliance for Decision Education, I just got to throw this in right at the end, which I co-founded, is actually trying to build decision education in K through 12 hmm. to try to start building in those skills. We don't skill up uh, kids in K through 12 with decision making, with probabilistic thinking, with all the things that are building blocks, how to have conversations, these kinds of things that make for better decisions that create better outcomes for individuals that then will create a better society. And so I really think you have to be building that one conversation at a time in the way that you're having this conversation with, with this woman of color in order to try to really understand and bridge that gap. If that's not happening on an individual level, like all over the place, I don't know how you create a better society. I don't know how you advance society forward. And it's all down to these individual people saying, I want to be a better decision maker. I want my knowledge to be better. I want to have better models of the world, better in interactions with people that I'm trying to learn from. Annie, you're legendary. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. This was a very unexpected conversation in a very positive way. Hmm. So I, I really enjoy it. I am sad that I have to pop. I'm curious why you think it was unexpected. And then I'll let you go. I promise. <laughs> sure. As I go into as I go into promoting my book, a lot of times people are very focused on specific things in my book, as opposed to just sort of like deep exploration of the conversation where it's going to go and allowing it to be in like unexpected places or about unexpected topics or whatever. Um, this is personally what I I love um, to have these just kind of like oh this is interesting like how do you think about the world and here's how I think about the world and that kind of thing. So. This was unexpected and quite and and quite enjoyable for me, and a nice way for me to spend my afternoon in a lovely and surprising way. <laughs> well, I feel exactly the same way about this conversation, Annie. And I I do love your writing. I think it's great, and I, I I'm excited that your new book's coming out. And I just I didn't know where the conversation was going to go, but I was looking forward to it, and um, it exceeded my expectations. Bye, Annie. Bye. There she is the legendary Annie Duke. Now, in uncertain times, um, you need to keep your eye on the road and your hands upon the wheel. 
And more than ever, a full picture of your business matters. And that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. NetSuite provides you with a full suite of business applications in the cloud. As a matter of fact, they're the leader in cloud ERP, including finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. Everything you need to gain the visibility and control over your business to make the right decisions moment by moment. That's NetSuite. Visit NetSuite.com slash different to schedule your free product tour and get your free guide today. That's NetSuite.com slash difference because at NetSuite, business grows here. And uh, big problems require big data. And uh, many of us have been grappling with some very, very tough things in business today. And that's where Splunk comes in. They're the leaders in data to everything, helping you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit Splunk, S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D to E and learn how to turn data into doing. All right. We would like to thank. Well, obviously, we'd like to thank you. And if you love this episode as much as I did, we would love you just a little bit extra if you shared this uh, shared this episode with your closest 10,000 friends. Uh, and of course, the legendary Annie Duke, her new book is out. Check it out. It's called How to Decide Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. Also want to thank Jennifer Sharver and Maria Sabutina for helping to make this episode happen. Thank you very much. Also, my good friends at One Life Fully Lived, they're the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out onelifefullylived.org. And if you happen to be in the marketing world, why not check out the number one charting marketing and strategy and mindset podcast, Lockhead on Marketing, wherever you get legendary oddcasts. My friends at... Uh, Bottleneck want to help you leverage the power of a distant assistant. Check out bottleneck.online where they've been physically distancing for a very long time. My friends at Rapid Media are the leading digital media agency in Australia. Check out rapidmedia.com.au if you want to use marketing to drive revenue. And um, I would like to encourage you to dig into your wallet and make a difference if you can. Support your local organizations, your food banks, your hospitals. Uh, and anything else that tears uh, that tugs on your heartstrings. If now, if if 2020 isn't a year to dig deep and uh, make some charitable contributions, I don't know what is. So if you can, please do. All right, this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we must warn you that uh, it is produced in a studio that does contain nuts and libations. We are produced and edited by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Check out Grumpy Old Geeks if you uh, love technology and you want to get your grump on. Technical Awesomeness by Jamie J and Sarah Knox, including Lockhead.com. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to teach thinking, be kind, listen to Prince. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Harvey Weinstein. Sorry, Harv, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Please stay safe. Take good care of yourself, your family, and your friends. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.